We talk a lot about the benefits of podcasting on this show. And one of the questions I often get from fiction writers is, I get it, podcasting would help my career if I write nonfiction, but what do I do if I write novels? How could a podcast help my novel? Well, find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living with writing worth talking about. So what do you do if you write fiction? Well, one option is to release your book beforehand as a serialized podcast. This is what my brother's doing right now with his book, Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded. And I know you're wondering, but will people buy my book if they've already listened to my podcast? Well, you could also ask, would people pay to go see a movie if they've already read the book? <laughs> so the people who've already read the book are the first in line to see the movie. And the same is true with podcasting. But you don't have to take my word for it. For years, I've been telling you about a legendary author who started his career by narrating his unabridged audiobooks and serializing them in weekly installments. And then he went on to become a number one New York Times bestselling author and the creator of 18 novels, six novellas, and dozens of short stories. He invented podcasting your novel and is an inaugural inductee in the Podcasting Hall of Fame. Scott Sigler, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for having me. I've been following your career for a long time, but I know some people are like, Scott Sigler, who's that? So how did you get started? Take us back. You're an unpublished author. You've got a manuscript sitting on your hard drive. What made you want to turn that into a podcast? I had several manuscripts sitting on my hard drive and had been chasing the dream of becoming a full-time novelist for about 12 years actively, not counting going into college to get a journalism degree because I knew I'd be writing constantly, doing a lot of reps at newspapers and gradually getting better at writing more succinctly. It's what I want to do since I was in the third grade. I'm one of those fortunate people who knew exactly what he wanted to do. And I, at the time I was working for a company called SNP Communications that did fabricated talk radio shows for Fortune 500 companies. And the company was old enough that at one point they were sending out cassette tapes of this to people in, in the company. And their way of looking at it was a company like Sun Microsystems of 20,000 employees, that's a small city. And in a small city, you're going to have a couple of radio stations, a newspaper, et cetera. So S&P Communications operated as the radio station for these big Fortune 500 companies. That meant they had a ton of recording gear there. And I was the marketing guy there for two years. And then back in 2004, I believe I learned about podcasting. So as an aspiring novelist, I went looking for novels to listen to on podcasts and couldn't find any. And this is early 2005. And it took me a couple of days of trying to Google different combinations of novel, serialized fiction. And when I finally realized I couldn't find any because there weren't any. And at that point, I went whole hog and I would go into the company at like three o'clock in the morning, use this gorgeous equipment I had and start recording my own audiobook. I knew nothing about RSS feeds. This is before podcasts were even in iTunes. So this was the ultimate early frontier, the Wild West. And I started putting out episodes of EarthCore. And then gradually, after five or six of them, I started to build up a big audience. And there were a couple other guys doing the same thing. Mark Jeffrey with a pocket independent and T. Morris with Moravi. And then all three of our 
audiobooks wound up on a podcast called The Dragon Page, hosted by Evo Terra and Mike Menengay. And so that kind of gave a boost to the audience. And there was literally only a couple hundred podcasts in the world tops at that point, maybe not even that many. So we started to get big subscriptions in. The difference between the three of our podcasts was they already had their books out. I did not because I couldn't get published. So I wound up getting this rabid fan base that waited every Sunday to hear the episode and would share it with their friends and send the links to their friends. Like, you got to check this out. This is free. He's saying it's on a bridge. He's not going to hold back the last episode. This is great stuff. And this was at the same time as Lost in 24. So America was newly turned on to long-form serialized content, as opposed to episodic content where every episode winds up back at the place it started, like Star Trek. You can watch them completely out of order. So Earthcore fit in with Lost in 24 and started to build up a really big audience. And then we put out a book at the end of it, but... The next book was called Ancestor, and when I finished Ancestor, I had a small print deal with a small Canadian imprint, and I realized I was doing a pretty good job at getting people to spread the word, so I said, well, maybe I can get them all to go buy the book on the same day, and that was the bum rush the charts for Ancestor back in 2007, April 1st, 2007, and was able to do that, was a guest on a lot of other podcasts, right? openly explain my strategy to all of these other podcast audiences that would have me on. And on April 1st, that went live and everybody started to buy the book. And Ancestor was a trade paperback, indie trade paperback with no marketing money behind it. This is before eBooks. That's how old I am. And <laughs> it went to be, it went on to be the number one book in horror on Amazon, number one book in sci-fi on Amazon, and was the number two fiction novel overall on Amazon, only behind Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. So- that was a gigantic success. And there were people in New York going like, who is this guy and how did he do that? How are we getting beat by this guy we've never yeah. heard of? <laughs> this guy we've never heard of doesn't seem to have any, he's not in the trades, he's not in the bookstores. How is this selling so well on Amazon? And I had also changed agents about six months before that. So my new agent, Bird Level, had my book infected on new desks that my previous agent hadn't put them on those desks. So- it was nuts. Ancestor went number one. And within a week, publishers were in a auction for Infected. And that did very well, got the deal for Infected, sold the movie rights like the next day. This was all very crazy, heady stuff. And then the next day, the publisher, Crown, which is a division of Random House, the editor, his name's Julian Pavia, awesome, awesome dude. He emailed, said, we really like things in trilogies. Does this happen to be a trilogy? I'm like, not really. He says, can you make it a trilogy? I'm like, <laughs> give me a minute. And I took only like 15 minutes. I basically wrote a paragraph for book two, a paragraph for book three, and sent it to him like, how's this? And then they bought those two. So it became a three book deal. <laughs> then they had me buy back the rights to Earthcore and Ancestor so they could control the Scott Sigler brand. So within a two week span, I went from banging my head against the wall for 16 years, collecting 153 rejection letters, going to all these writers' conferences and cons, trying to meet editors, make connections, get my book in front of people. Two weeks later, had a five-book deal with Random House, had a movie optioned. It was kind of nuts. Yeah, and and the difference was the podcast because the, the book didn't change, right? There's the same proposal that former agent didn't have the magic sauce. Like, the magic sauce was your sales results on Amazon. <laughs> it was such a huge part of it because I was sending out this the same book to publishers 
And the most common thing I always heard was, we like it, but we don't know what shelf to put it on. Because it's horror, but it wasn't vampiric or supernatural, which were huge at the time. There's military aspects to it. It's a thriller, but it's got sci-fi. So they didn't know what to do with it. And then when the podcast numbers started coming, at one point I had 20,000 people listening every week. And I'm reaching out to my agent, reaching out to the editors I was communicating with. I'm like, there are 20,000 people listening to this every week. And they just didn't get the concept of the numbers. They didn't really know what numbers were on the internet. There were still publishers who weren't even on the internet at that point. But <laughs> once they saw the numbers on Amazon, and it was only there for a couple of days, it wasn't like it ran for a year. It's not like a Stephen King novel, but that translated into numbers they could understand, which is books sold and rank. Once that happened, they were like, okay, they didn't know what I was doing, but they knew there was something going on and they wanted to grab it. And just to be clear, part of what Crown Publishing was buying the rights to were books that you had already completely released for free on your podcast. And so I just want to dispel this myth one more time because I hit it so often. Just because you gave out your book for free and you built this big fan base, that's not necessarily a liability, right? That for you, that's what really made the difference because you're able to demonstrate, look, I've got 20,000 people who are really excited about this book. And if we say, hey, this audio that you listen to you can get the paper version of that. They'll run out and grab the paper version or the ebook version of that. They totally did. And it, it became more of a token. It was a talisman. So the people who'd listened all the way through and really enjoyed it because they had this connection with an author they'd never experienced before. I was there every, every Sunday reading the story out loud to them, responding to everybody on social media. So all of these people who some had never met an author felt like they had a personal connection. Once the book became available, They bought the book, most of them just to support me because I said, would you buy this? And they said, of course, because they felt they'd already got their money's worth out of the free story. And a lot of people bought it just to have in their shelf because they had all their other favorite books on their shelf and they wanted it there. Nowadays, though, it's a little bit different now in that audiobooks are the biggest revenue generator for publishers. So having audio out there that can compromise an audiobook deal supposedly can be a bad thing. I don't agree with that at all. Podcast fiction and ebooks are, I I call them like that's the minor leagues, the developmental leagues of the publishing world. Because yeah, you may put out an ebook and there are people who've just sold massive numbers of ebooks. But if you've sold a half a million copies of an ebook, Random House is not going to be mad at that. Simon & Schuster is not going to be mad at that because that is a market-tested product that they know resonates with readers. And that is something for all the money they spend over and over again. With especially with a new author, they have no idea, no idea if any book they put out is going to sell more than a couple of thousand copies. So if you've got a podcast that's getting massive listenership or an ebook that's got massive readership, that's a boon to the publishers because they're going to spend all of this big money to do this book, put this book out, promo this book. If they know it's a product that already has resonance with the marketplace, they're much more likely to pull the trigger and pick that up. Because there's this big court case happening right now. A couple of the big five are trying to merge and Mm -hmm. they're in court and all of the dirty laundry of the industry is being aired. And one of the things that recently came out was how few traditionally published books get any sales. (laughs) Like like, something like half the books get less than a thousand sales. Like you're just because you're with a traditional publisher, even with one of the big ones, doesn't mean that you're going to get any kind of sales and they're losing money on those books. And so if you can demonstrate, look, I've got this fan base, they will talk about the book. It really makes a difference. And I'm curious, what's the impact now in 2022 on your audiobook sales? Has this strategy completely cannibalized your audiobook sales? 
It hasn't. By and large, they're two different marketplaces. So we still put out our podcast, Serialized, where I do an intro every week. They listen to the episode. Sometimes there's an outro. We run advertising when we get it. And if you want to associate with the author, you can get this podcast for free. If you just want an audiobook read to you, well, they're up there on Audible. And the other thing that we've done pretty well, although it's changed over the years, is we are giving this podcast away for free. It's 40 episodes. I'll be with you for the next 40 Sundays. But hey, if you want to get the whole story now, you can go get an Audible. And if I'm doing my job correctly and I'm engaging with the fans and I've got a good story, a lot of people are like, I love listening to every Sunday, Scott, but I, I cannot wait five, six months to get this whole story. So they go and get it. So I find that two don't cannibalize each other at all. They complement each other very well. And the other thing to keep in mind is you can do a full podcast run. And while authors are doing the full podcast run and editing the audio and coming up with these finished chapters or finished episodes, when you're done, that exact same audio, you can bunch that up and put it up on Audible. So you can do it, if you're an indie, you can do it either way. You can either put it up on Audible, then podcast the episodes, or you can podcast the episodes. If you're too busy to do that, you do one episode at a time. When you're done, you've got a product that's almost ready to go to Audible. And I think Audible is where the money is at for the, vo- the vast majority of authors. I love that in that you're using the cliffhanger at the end of every serialized episode, which is mm-hmm. how you do serialized fiction, right? It's like, stay tuned for next time. Not that you do a cheesy version of that. My brother's podcast, he actually has a like 1920s announcer voice. He's cool. like, find out next time, right? And he, he, he does it real over the top. But you always kind of leave them wanting more. And for you, it's doing double duty because it's not just selling the next episode. It's also there's this subtle hand and you don't oversell it. But it's like, hey, this book's on Audible right now. If you want to know how the whole story ends, just one Audible credit. And I think that's a really solid strategy. Now, I noticed that you are now no longer traditionally published, right? You're number one New York Times bestselling author, but you've Mm -hmm. now gone indie. (laughs) Uh, So why go indie? Largely because of the Galactic Football League series that we have, and we developed a lot of knowledge putting that out. I offered this one to all the sci-fi houses, a random house, and everybody passed on it even after I was already selling books and was on the New York Times list with Contagious. They just weren't interested in it, and it was a kind of a passion play for me. So we put a book up called The Rookie, that's book one of the series, we put that out ourselves and made a hardcover limited edition with color plates inside and really tricked it out and did a full offset print run on it, 2,000 copies and sold out of that almost immediately. And we're like, cool. All right. So we didn't know it at the time, but we had this book, we did the hardcover, limited edition sold out. We then put out a paperback for it and we put out the audiobook for it, which was the same stuff that I had to re-record it from the podcast. And this was right about the time that ACX started to come out. And that's Audible's Creator Exchange, I think. That's where you can record your own audiobook and have it go straight into Audible. If you don't have a narrator, you can partner with freelance narrators right from the site. We saw ACX coming, and at the time, the royalties were extremely competitive, where I believe it was 40 or 50% to start out with. And then every thousand units you sold, it bumped up a percentage point. So we were looking at this, and I'm like, I know that if I sell an audiobook from Random House, I'm going to get at most 8%. And finding that 8% on a, a royalty report is almost impossible. I mean, in my limited experience, it was a train wreck trying to get a hold of people and be like, I would like to know how many audiobooks I have sold this quarter 
<laughs> and you're waiting two years sometimes to find out. So all of the effort you put into marketing, we had no idea if any of it worked. The only way to track if it worked was just follow the Amazon ranking and that was it. So that was going on. And then we're looking at these contracts where right out of the gate, we're making five times what we get from Random House. So the logic was, we're going to sell a whole lot more copies with Random House at the smaller royalty or a whole lot fewer copies of Rookie, but at a much higher royalty. But then we had a couple books where that royalty just kept climbing. And now we've got a book that's at 90% royalty and Amazon has done away with this. But what we got, we took every property we had, we got it in there and we really have used the ACX uh, quite a lot. So that's the main source of revenue for us. And because that continues, even though now Audible is at a fixed 40%, and I think they're probably soon going to go down to 35 or 30, it's not quite as lucrative as it is for new books, but we own all the rights. We own print, we own the ebook rights, we can put paperbacks out, we can do our own fulfillment. We were getting our books in bookstores at the time, no problem. And then you give all that up to get effectively a couple of months of marketing, maybe. The other thing we found when we were with the bigs is I'm an ex-marketing guy. I've worked for several soft, small software companies for marketing, got a degree in that. I know what I'm doing to some extent. So I could plan out my limited budget and my time and say, this is what we're going to do. We started to work with the big publishers and like, I'm going to do this. They're like, well, we're going to do this, this, and this. I'm like, cool. I don't have to do those things. And then <laughs> the book would come out and you would find out they had not done the things they said they were going to do. And it's too late. Once the book is out, it's too late for trying to yeah. bump up that first week sales. So there's a lot of stuff like that. The compromises were that the editing process at Random House was exceptional and their whole packaging team, the books they can make, the product they can make, sending you to cons, sending you on book tour, that stuff, you can't do that on your own. You can to some extent, but not like they can do it. So we had to give that up because we were more looking at not the revenue of this year, but the revenue over the next 30 years. When I'm 70 how much will we be making when it's selling on my own as opposed to how much will we be making when selling with Random House? Yeah. I want to go back to a specific episode because you have a real specific format. And I think for somebody who's wanting to try podcasting their audiobook, one, you need to go and subscribe to Scott Sigler's podcast. <laughs> but I'll, let's go through your format. Because sometimes hearing it, it's hard to hear the elements, especially if you're not a native podcaster. So you open up with announcements. You kind of share, hey, I'm going to be at such and such convention or kind of give announcements and news. And I think that that's really important for a couple of reasons. One, it makes it different than just listening to the audiobook. It adds a little bit of friction and it makes the audiobook feel a little better. But more importantly, it humanizes you because it is possible to be too professional where you come across as robotic or distant and those announcements and sharing what's going on, whining about COVID or talking about the airport, things like that actually build that connection and help listeners feel like they know who you are. <laughs> You're not just a generic narrator reading a book. You're Scott Sigler reading a book. And then you have the recap of the chapter. So why do you do the recap. Why recap the last episode when they could just listen to that last episode again? Because it just depends on when they listen to it. Sometimes people binge and download everything. Sometimes people listen to episode four, then life got in the way and they come back three months later to hear episode five. It's also, for me, that's a way to queue up the most important parts of the upcoming episode. And you can see this, shows like The Boys do this, shows like Lost do this. The little bits like previously on, those little bits are like a they're a memory trigger for the reader. So when they get to that big aha moment for that episode, they're not going, wait, I thought he was the guy. Is that the guy? Like they know who the guy is, so to speak. We always open up with a very bombastic over the top 
theatrical opening or theme song open up. We try and keep that to 15 seconds or less. But that bumper, that signage also says, this is Scott Sigler, number New York Times bestseller, reading Nocturnal. Nocturnal is available in all formats at amazon.com or go to scottsigler.com slash nocturnal. So it's always a bump right in their head, right out of the gate. Like, you can go buy this. That's cool. Then we do the talking thing. And at times I've called that the four minutes of fury. And <laughs> we tell all of this stuff to the audience. We're very open with everything we're doing. So I'll be like, you know, you're going to hear the four minutes of fury. That's just me blabbing. If you want to skip it, move about the four minute mark and you'll get right into the story. So somehow letting them know ahead of time that it's only going to be a limited amount of talking space makes a lot of them go ahead and listen to it. It's when they don't know how long it is, they start hitting that skip button. So we do that. And then I'll, if it's a bigger story, or if it's a bigger personal story, I'll say, you know what? I went to Dragon Con. If you want to stick around after the episode, I'll talk to you about all my experience at Dragon Con. And then you can do whatever you want. You can talk for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You can be Joe Rogan and add a whole hour of content at the end of your episode. <laughs> and the people who want to listen to that, absolutely, they eat it up. They completely eat it up. So like you said, it humanizes it. We were also open from day one. I'm like, I am trying to take over the literary world and bring it directly to you and just everything you don't know how to do, tell the audience. Everything you do know how to do, tell the audience exactly what you're doing. At least that's what has worked for us. So we never pretended to be super professional. Uh, I see a lot of people trying to position their book as far more successful than it is. Audiences love an underdog story. So if you're an indie author out there and you're putting your own stuff out, Tell everybody about the bumps and bruises of that. Say like, oh, I couldn't write this week because the baby got sick. I mean, that humanizing stuff, you won't get that from Stephen King. You're not going to get that from Anne Rice, right? This is a, it's a huge peek behind the curtain for fiction lovers to see the wizard making all of this stuff. And even if you're not a good narrator, if you want to have somebody else narrate your stuff, that's cool. You can do that. If you're not a good narrator, you're not confident at it, your confidence will grow, but having an author sit down with you for an hour a week and read you a story, people cannot help but become fans and acolytes and evangelists of you. They start to like you because we are wired as human beings to respond to the sound of the human voice, all the emotion contained, all the intensity contained. So once people think they know you and get to know you, you've largely got a fan. As long as you don't lie to them and pretend you're something you're not, I think everybody can do pretty well at it. The one thing I will say though, is if you're going to start podcasting your books, sit down and think for a while how to do it consistently. And there's two schools of thought on this. I've been doing it nonstop for 16 years now. And a large part of my audience has come from the fact that every Sunday, I'm there no matter what's going on with this person's life. Scott's going to be there and he's going to tell me about the story and I get to unplug for a while and listen to Scott jabber for 45 minutes to an hour or so. That's worked very well for me. I don't know if the environment has changed now. Shows like Serial and the NPR stuff and all of those shows where they come out and just drop the whole thing or they just finish up a season and then you wait a while, you get another season. I think that works pretty well, but I think those properties also lose listenership the longer they go without doing something. So I'm still a big proponent of sit down and map it out. Talk to your family, talk to your spouse. Like I'm going to be doing this for three years. I think you have to do it three years every week for, and then you will start to see significant results. That's when the audience bloom really started to happen for us. Yeah, I think doing it in seasons can work because not everyone can write enough where they're generating yeah. 30 minutes or 45 minutes of audio every week. 
So if you do it in a season where it's weekly for 30 weeks and then you take a couple months off, I think what's absolutely a mistake is the binge drop strategy. You know, Gimlet experimented with this, Serial experimented with this, and it is no good. That's where you drop 10 episodes or the whole book, God forbid, all at once. And the reason why this doesn't work is that some apps, some podcast apps will only download the most recent episode. So you drop 10 episodes all at once. It's just going to download chapter 10 which is confusing because they're like, what is this chapter 10? (laughs) And maybe they won't download those other ones and you've lost all of your momentum. Because part of the reason why the strategy works is that there's a whole week for your fans to talk to each other about the episode without spoiling the next episode. Every week there's a new episode and there's a new thing to get angry about or a new thing to get excited about. And that that getting people to talk about it was a huge part of my success early on. (laughs) It's crazy to think how long we're doing this. We did this literally before Facebook. So when Facebook was just still in, in one campus dorm, we had a site where people could sign up, have a profile, interact. We had 15,000 people at scottsigler.com. And many of those were just watchers, but a lot of them were very active. So we had a very active community. We were integral to friendships forming from people who would have never met without my fiction. And people are still super fans and super friends of each other today. And all that stuff was great. In modern day context, as you need to be ready to be responsive, that's a big part of the work is getting yourself out there in the places people are having conversations. And this isn't like a second full-time job, but you really got to budget time to like, okay, I'm directing people in my podcast to go to my Facebook page to talk about this book. You need to make time to respond to people who are there commenting. Because that's the other part. One, they listen to you, they hear your voice, they get to know you as a human being. And whether it's accurate or not, they count you as one of their friends. You're there for them every week. That's one part of it. The other part of it is you get a response from a creator. Like you're a big fan of a certain painter and like you talk about their stuff online and they pop in and be like, oh, I'm so glad you liked the, I'm so glad you like my work. That's awesome. It changes people's attitude about you. It makes crazy super fans. And I, we've seen that a lot. We don't spend as much time as we used to uh, on social media, but for a while it was a big part of everything. Like someone out there is talking to me, I'm going to respond good or bad, whatever they're saying, we're going to at least show that we are we're paying attention and we're listening. So those kind of things can make for really great relationships with the reader. And it's easier if you're a full-time author to have that time yeah. for social media. Because if you had to choose between working on your book and doing social media, it was one or the other, work in your book, get better at writing. Correct. <laughs> the social media is one of those luxuries for successful authors. They want to interact with fans. And you have to already have the fans from the writing. You don't become famous by doing social media. You, you can become famous potentially by writing an amazing book and releasing it one episode a week so that your fans tell each other about your fiction. But no one's going to be like, oh, that meme was so funny. I'm, now I want to read your novel. It doesn't. Dude, I, to be honest, I, I don't know. There's a lot of authors. I don't think this sells books, but they get big numbers on Twitter where the, the meme sharing by authors is pretty. A lot of people do it and they do it very well. We don't really do it because it's not our thing. You know, a lot of people being very polarizing in politics, a lot of authors do that and that can be marketing for them. We don't do that either. We ride herd on all that. Even in all of our communities, we're like, there's plenty of places to go talk about that stuff and yell at each other. You're not doing it here. Here's This is a fun thing. This escapist thing. So I really don't know anymore how effective a lot of the social media is. All I do know is get that first podcast out and when you... Set up vanity searches. When you see your name pop up on Twitter, 
or your Twitter Twitter name pop up, you see yourself pop up on any of these sites, find a little bit of time, just pop in and say, hey, thanks. And that does an enormous amount of work for you. Yeah. But time's the, the biggest factor. Yeah. I mean, at one point I was doing this, it was like full-time writer, full-time marketer, full-time day job. It was just nuts. So there was a couple of years where this is all I did, but I didn't have kids. And I think that's one of the big differentiators. <laughs> I will say as somebody who does look at those numbers, social media doesn't work like it used to. Um, yeah. Facebook has really shifted the algorithm where they'll give you some juice for your interaction. But as soon as you try to send them away to Amazon to actually buy your book or to listen to your podcast, that particular post will get really suppressed unless you put money behind it. And so Facebook particularly has really the only thing that's working there is advertising. Correct. Uh, and they make you pay to reach your own audience. And you can make that work. And there's some indie authors who are able to profitably advertise on Facebook. Yeah. But with the new Apple change, the privacy shifts targeting the right kind of people have gotten harder because Facebook's ability to read people's minds by tracking everything they do on their phone has is diminished somewhat. We've spent money on Facebook, but I, I agree with you. They're in the process of digging their own grave. You know, I got 23,000 people who have opted into my Facebook page who said, yes, I want to hear what this guy's got to say. I'm following his page. And if we get 1% penetration naturally, that's pure luck because Facebook wants you to pay to reach the people who have opted in to hear your stuff. When I feel like they'd be looked upon more fairly if, hey, here's all the stuff you put out that your people want to see. Also look at all this other stuff. Now, like if I can make ad buys to horn in on Stephen King traffic and put myself because we have similar style, I think that's awesome. Everybody wins that way. But yeah, Facebook so complicated. Advertising in there has become so complicated. We, we gave up on that, I think, a couple of years ago. We just didn't see the returns. We couldn't measure the returns. It was so complicated and it took up a lot of time. That's very common. A lot of authors gave up a couple of years ago. It still can work, but it's getting it to work has become so much harder that if you're not putting in the time and that time can often be spent better doing something else. <laughs> and always remember it's easy for social media to gobble up your actual writing the book time. Correct. And, and back to writing the book, I'm curious, since you know you're as you're writing the book ahead of time that it's going to be a serialized podcast, does that affect how you tell the story? Like, do you think about episode breaks as you're writing the story or do you just write the story the way it would be in a single volume? I just write the story the way it would be in a single volume. And then our uh, engineer will divide it up. Our rule of thumb is the first logical break after 20 minutes. So we don't stop in the middle of something. We'd wait for a chapter to end. And if that winds up being a long chapter, so it's a 45-minute episode, great. If it's a 30-minute episode, we divide it up based on the way it is. It doesn't affect my style that much anymore. But over the first 10 years, podcasting drastically changed my writing style because I was all on my own. I was literally recording in a closet in San Francisco. And I would write the story. Then I would read the story into the microphone. And I started to realize when I'm reading it out loud, I was getting bored at my own stuff by reading it out loud. <laughs> then I would have to listen to that whole thing and I would have to edit that. And some parts I'm like, I am completely bored of my own writing now that I've heard it out loud twice. So a lot of that stuff, I learned to get rid of that stuff. So very long-winded descriptions, things that just didn't contribute to the story started to get parsed out of my style altogether. And my writing became much more terse and succinct and spoken word style. Like when you have a conversation with your pals at a bar, 
or you're doing a text conversation, who uses complete sentences? I mean, like, think about when you're doing your text chats, these are rapid fire bullet point conversations and everybody knows what everybody else is saying. So that has impacted my style a lot to the point where like my new editor at Athon, who's never been around my work before, I got the edits back and there's like 9,000 edits and 9,000 corrections in this book because she's trying to apply traditional grammar to it, which is her job. But now I have to go through and be like, yeah, I'm old enough now that I have a very specific style. That style is directly informed by podcasting because our we put out audiobooks. That's what we do. Our company's Empty Set Entertainment. The audiobooks are just me. But our focal point is we write a book that is meant to sell. We're going to get a top-notch narrator. We're going to go sell audiobooks. My writing style feeds the narrative style. Yeah. Uh, it's so interesting because this is very similar to what happened to C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis was a professor. He was an academic and his early books were very academic. And then the BBC asked him to do a series of radio programs. And I think it was Mere Christianity was released as BBC radio programs during the Blitz, actually. So people would be hunkered in their homes in London, getting bombed by the Nazis, listening to C.S. Lewis, you know, calming them down. And his writing shifted after that to being just exactly the sorts of changes that you made, more conversational, more approachable. Mm-hmm. And it unlocked his writing. He he was popular before he did those radio programs, but he became insanely popular afterwards because his writing became more tr- approachable in the Narnia books and all the others. Anyone can read that, right? You don't have to get an English degree to appreciate the Narnia books. And that's one of the reasons why I love podcasting your book, because it does. It forces you to read it out loud, which... I know you've heard that every writing guru says, read your writing out loud. But when you're doing it into a microphone, you're really doing it for real. And then listening to it like that, that really does help you become more conversational. And it helps you understand if you're hitting your goal, your own in terms of your voice, if your voice is what you want your voice to be. Right, right. It was hugely beneficial for me to become a much better writer than I was when I started out by reading that stuff out loud. Like today, I'm working on the final draft of Shakedown, book one of the crypt. And before I finish the edits for every chapter, I go start at the top and I have Microsoft Word read me the whole chapter and I just sit back and listen to it. And I catch so much stuff, like words that are very, a couple sentences apart, but they sound the same, the same word more than once in a sentence, repeating phrases. You pick up a lot of that when you just sit back and listen to it. So my goal is always to remove what I call the speed bumps, which is anything that reminds you you are reading. So if there's a quote and you can't, you're confused about the attribution, you don't know who's talking till you get the end of the paragraph, things like that, I go back and fix that. So speaking of things that you learned the hard way, what are some other mistakes they can look out for? Two primary things. You are not selling a book. You're not selling a series. You are selling you. All of your signage, all of your branding, all of your imagery, everything should be author name. That's what you are selling. And the other part of that is, do I would advise against making a series-specific feed and then moving on to another feed. Now, I'm doing that now, and I'll explain why in a second. But when I did Earthcore, it had this huge fan base. And then like, cool, did that. Now I'm going to switch over to Ancestor. And I made a brand new podcast feed for Ancestor. The vast majority of that audience was gone. Like I had to, then I had to work to go get people who already like my stuff and get them to go over and sign up for this new feed. So I would say for your first five books or so, just to have one single feed. Remember, it's not the property that gets the branding. It's you. Everything should come through yourauthorname.com. And that helps a lot. 
But things have changed. So now I've got 18 things that we've podcast in completion. So now we're going back, taking all what I call this back catalog content, and we're putting them all up as individual properties in the various podcasting feeds. So we're just starting to do that. We just started to do that with Nocturnal, and we'll get to the rest of them. The next one up is the Infected Trilogy, because that stuff doesn't do anything for me anymore. And I don't know if it's still that way, but there were limits on how big the feed could be. So we would have to go back and cut out all the old books to be able to put out a new book. At one point, we could do the book we're listening to, one book past that, and some of the book past that. So we just started to clean everything out. Now all of those old things are coming to their own feet. But for the people starting out, remember every every minute and every penny you spend on marketing, if you're spending it just on that book or just on that series or that world, eventually that is going to not provide you any return where every bit of marketing you spend on your author brand name that is going to pay off. James Patterson is a great model to look at. It's like the title of the book doesn't even matter because his name is so big on the front because you are <laughs> you are becoming a customer of James Patterson. Yeah, it'd be like creating an email newsletter just for one book and then Correct. having to start over again with zero subscribers. But I do like the idea of carving out, especially if you've been going as long as you have, because you're exactly right in that people won't scroll down through a thousand episodes right. of old books. And the other thing I would strongly advise is figure out how to have an email list and you push that because the email list is the one thing you are going to be able to control throughout your career. And again, I spent so much time building up this big Facebook group that I could market to and then all of that got taken away. So anything you use like that, if you're not the one paying for it, eventually that's going to become not available. Like Tumblr's a great one. There were several Tumblr authors and even authors who had their whole website was Tumblr and they did very well and they connected with their audience, except their audience starts to age out of using that particular service. And then Tumblr made some changes and its popularity dropped through the floor. So all of the effort they put into being a Tumblr-focused author, it's gone. They lost all of that. But an email list is something you get to hold throughout your entire career so to me, that's the best source of information capture you can have. You're preaching to the choir here. If you don't hear it from me, hopefully you'll listen to Scott Sigler, <laughs> number one New York Times bestselling author. If he's saying you need an email list and you need to own your platform, then hopefully you'll believe it uh, from him. <laughs> so real quick before we go, I want to give you the blame slash give you the credit for cool. some pushback that I get. So I have my 10 commandments of novel marketing. And one of them is about owning your brand. We, we talked about that a little bit. But the ninth commandment, which is the one I get the most flack for, is thou shalt not publish thine first book first. And it's all about getting that first book out of the way. And you influence that somewhat. You've got your five steps for writing a book. And I'll include, it's a great video series that you made absolutely free on YouTube. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. But you talk about writing the first bad book and getting it out of your system. So can you give a defense for that so they're not just hearing it from me? <laughs> absolutely. The number one, your first book is terrible. And I'm sure people are in the middle of writing theirs or finish theirs and are like, well, that turned out a lot better than I thought it would. That's really not all that bad. My wife likes it. My husband likes it. My mom likes it. I'm telling you right now, your first book is terrible. And my advice that's in the video series he'll share is if you don't know how to write a first book, you're just starting out, write a bad book. Because when you're in a bad book and you get to the fourth or fifth chapter and nothing makes any sense anymore, 
you want to push through to learn how to finish. What you don't want to do is stop that book, move over and do another one, then another one, then another one. Now you've got four half-finished books and you haven't finished anything. There's no magic dust that's going to come down from the sky and get you to finish these books. So my advice is write a bad book. If you don't know what happens in chapter five, beam in an alien with a, with a gun, it does, nothing matters. All that matters is keep going, write an 80,000 word book because that is market length and finish it. And when you finish it, you take that thing and you put it away. And two key things happen. Number one, you have trained yourself. A small part of your brain now realizes you can have and will finish a book when you set out to do so, which is critical because then when you move on to that book that you've always wanted to write, the one you think the plot is killer, DiCaprio's going to star in it, you got it all figured out, you're going to get stuck in the middle of that. And a lot of people, most people walk away, but not you. If you finished that bad book in your head, you'll be like, well, this is not going very well, but I'm going to keep plowing forward because you already know in here that you can do it. That's the biggest thing. The other thing is finish that first book. And even though you wrote a bad book, I get, most people will think, you know what, secretly, that's, it's pretty good. That's pretty good. Put that book <laughs> Everyone thinks they're the exception. They're like, I know everybody else's first book is bad, but yeah. my first book's actually really good. <laughs> Everyone thinks they're going to get discovered and they're going to get lucky. And uh, what you do is you put that book away for six months. So you forget what you think you wrote and then you read it and you see what's actually on the page, and you have an experience that is similar to what your readers will go through. And I guarantee you when you do that, you'll be very happy you did not put your first book out. I also compare it to, if you're going to go get a job that requires an education, first thing you have to do is get that education. You have to go to college to get that degree, to go get that job. Writing that first novel, that is your own personal college. No matter what you've learned, what writing course you've taken, you are not good at this craft yet. So to your commandment number nine, that is my advice. Listen to this man. He knows what he's talking about. ScottSigler.com is the website. I really encourage all of you to go and subscribe to his podcast. Just search for Scott Sigler in the app you're using right now. I highly recommend his Stone Wolf series. I was binging it until an embarrassingly late hour last <laughs> night, which really was foolish because my kids were up all night right after that. And so my precious sleep hours were in, inhibited by the Stone Wolves series, but it's, it's really good. I encourage you to listen to it both because it's a fun story, but also listen to how he's doing it. And particularly, I really like how you use your recap of the last episode as basically enhanced foreshadowing. Yep, which is exactly. a, just a brilliant tactic to take an otherwise written for paper book and using it to turn it into something episodic and serial. And it's really good strategy. So listen to how he does that. Subscribe to his book. You can also check out his newsletter. And Scott, any final advice or encouragement? Just realize that if you want to be like a more full-time writer and put stuff out, you want to get engagement, it's repetition, man. You just got to keep doing it, keep doing it. And also... Nowadays, you must start to understand some forms of marketing because no one is going to do it for you. And when they do do it for you, it's probably not going to be all that great. If you got a bunch of money to push around, go hire someone to do it, more power to you. That's awesome. But understand the days of being able to just write and everything happens or other people take over for you, those days are gone. So learn, start to get your head around the fact that it's a two-sided job. There's the writing and then there's the marketing and or presenting yourself if you don't like the word marketing. Well said. Well said. Scott Sigler, thank you so much for joining us on the Novel Marketing Podcast. And thanks for having me. If you are looking for help starting a podcast of your own, I am in the process of creating a whole course to walk you through 
launching a podcast, putting it together, and growing an audience for your podcast. Right now, the course is in beta, and it's only available to the beta students of the Obscure No More course. So if you are taking Obscure No More, if you sign up for Obscure No More while it is in the beta window, you will get access to the Author Podcast Academy, which is, I believe, what we're going to call the course. Again, it's all in beta. It's all in the works, but everything is there up to launching the podcast. The next modules I plan to add are on growing your audience. And once that's done, I will officially release the Author Podcast Academy course. But if you can't wait, sign up to be an Obscure No More student. And now's a really good time because since I'm also running behind on Obscure No More, you can still get Obscure No More at the special beta pricing. You can find out information about that at authormedia.com slash courses. Our featured patron is Jonathan Schruger, author of Shades of Black and Darkness Cast. A young swordsman, desperate to save his people, turns to the only instructor he can find, the bitter champion of the everlasting dark. They know the light best, who first know the dark. Jonathan, thank you for becoming a patron. Thank you for supporting this podcast and helping keep us on the air. I really appreciate it. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our producer is Lori Christine. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, and the blog version is crafted by Shauna Lettler. To read the blog version of this episode, visit authormedia.com slash 342. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.